You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. This is um, this is my first podcast interview about Free Your Mind. So I'm very fresh for this. I'm very ready. Perhaps just a simple place for us to start is you say that uh, there's a war on our minds, that we may not notice it, but we're surrounded by manipulators, advertisers, politicians, big tech. Even the waiter asks us if we want still or sparkling, <laughs> which I love. So what is this war on our minds? Well, you know, in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Persuasion is completely integral to human communication, to humans. And so in a sense, then, so is manipulation. I think that what makes the Taiwan different the, the, the what justifies the part of the title, the new world of manipulation is a few things. I mean, first of all, you can go through Amazon and see there are literally thousands of books that teach people how to manipulate one way or another. You know, there are thousands of books about advertising, um, nudge theory, propaganda, thousands of books teaching the dark arts of persuasion but there's almost nothing about how you resist those dark arts so we're living in a world that's populated with so many books and podcasts etc about how to manipulate people but nothing that really teaches people how to defend themselves you know to recognize and resist those attempts at manipulation and so in a way this is a book that's one of these really obvious ideas and you know come up the other idea and I'm thinking well why didn't anybody come up with this idea sooner this book has always been needed but the now bit of it is um really due due to an epiphany that I had during Covid and also my co-author who's a very talented behavioural scientist called Patrick Fagan. During COVID, we were both um, very cognizant and actually quite alarmed by the use of propaganda and nudging, specifically as well the use of fear, to make people to comply with the lockdown rules. So, you know, whether you whatever you think of COVID, whatever you think of the lockdown rules, put that aside, how did governments get people to follow the rules? And it was in part using very subliminal manipulation techniques so that for me was an epiphany and I I wrote a book at the time called A State of Fear how the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic and I had I'll be honest I had a slightly naive idea that I would point out how terrible all this fear-mongering is and I would even maybe persuade the UK government to investigate its own use of behavioural psychology. I can look back now and think that was terribly naive. There will be no government white knights. The government, no ethical body is going to help you to recognise the techniques they use to make you to com- comply with policies. And so for me, the follow on to this epiphany was giving people agency 
um, doing something to give people uh, sovereignty over their own mind, to know their own mind. Because I think if you asked anybody listening to this podcast, you know, anybody in the world, do you want to be an individual and know your own mind? The answer is going to be yes. The other point I want to come back to about nudging and nudge theory is that I think a lot of us have this kind of old fashioned, quaint idea that psychology will be about diagnosing you and fixing you. But I don't I don't really see psychology as just performing that role in the world anymore. You know, there's this whole area of psychology, behavioral psychology, which is about changing how you think and changing how you behave without you really being aware. And governments are doing it, too, now. So. I personally don't really see much problem with brand A trying to get you to buy their brand over brand B. I mean, who cares? This is what companies do. And this is the field that Patrick works in. Neither of us really take issue with that. But I think it's fair to say that governments are using nudging theory a lot more now. And that really changes our relationship with governments, whereas it used to be more transactional. You know, you pay your taxes to the government for the government to deliver on a manifesto, which you voted them in upon. Um, it's become a lot more subtle. Now governments try to soften you up for policies that they may not have explained so well in their manifesto by using quite subliminal and covert techniques to get you to do what they want. So we have a different relationship with the government that's really changing us, actually. It's changing how we think and we behave. So, So the book is also in response to that. It's in response to governments as well as companies using Nudge. There's a couple of things I would just love to perhaps pick up on. Um, one thing I'd be interested to just kind of uh, just for some clarity, just before perhaps we we move on. I suppose you mentioned today that that in some ways we're always trying to persuade um, to persuade others. Right, for, for you to even be on this Zoom call, I had to send you an email to to try to persuade you to to, to come and speak with me for an hour. Um, I suppose you know parents are trying to persuade their children to study or to go and eat some fruit or some vegetables. Um, but in your mind, perhaps, where does, you know, persuasion or influence then become manipulation? I think that's going to be different for the individual. And, you know, you didn't have to persuade me very hard to come on your show. First of all, it's got the word freedom in the title. So I see you as a very <laughs> natural fit for me. But <laughs> let's be honest, the whole book is about trying to influence and persuade people, mm. not necessarily of our points of view on particular matters. You know, there'll be times in the book where you see Patrick and I slide off the fence a little bit. We started off writing the book very ideologically and politically neutral. It felt a bit boring. You will get <laughs> a sense of some of our politics as you're reading it. But while it's a self-help book, it can also have a hint of being polemic. Think of Jordan Peterson. You know, you kind of know what he thinks about things when you read his books about psychology. That said, the whole point of the book is to influence you to not be influenced if you don't want to be. Sometimes we want to be influenced. I mean, I really wanted to influence my children to learn to read. You could say I manipulated them hard into learning to read by reading the bedtime stories every night. But I think it's important that we ourselves can recognise when specific techniques are used against us beyond that sort of innocent way where we say, have a nice day, because we really want each other to have a nice day. But into changing how we think and changing how we behave without us wanting to be changed. There are times you may want to actually completely let it wash all over you. I'll give you two examples. What about going to 
a concert or Glastonbury Music Festival. Now, if you've read the chapter, Watch Out for the Blip, um, which is all about how you avoid those kind of downbeats in life that make you more vulnerable to manipulation. There's one that we often choose to go to, which would be a concert. When you go to or a festival, if you go to a festival, the chances are you won't sleep very well. Your eating patterns might be thrown off kilter. You may drink more. Some people may take illegal substances. All of these things affect the clarity of your mind. Add to that being in a large group, a large group of people in which the individual can lose themselves a little bit in the mass. And then the rhythm, the music, almost like chanting, powerful messages from a stage in front of you. You know, it's no wonder at all that political messages are sometimes delivered from the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. So you can go to something like that and know that you may leave a little bit different, but you want to because it's fun. And you maybe identify with those people that are on the stage. You're choosing to be to a degree manipulated because it's fun to go to a concert or another one will be going to a place of worship if you think about going to church you know everything about the architecture is designed to take your soul upwards to take your contemplation upwards somewhere divine the incense is supposed to cloud the air a little bit so that you lose focus um the hymns the praying it's all supposed to get you into a worshipful frame of mind when people go to church they're choosing in a way this is a controversial way of putting it, but they're choosing in a way to be brainwashed a little bit because we choose to go into situations and into messages that we want to take us on a journey. So sometimes you may you may even deliberately choose your master, as it were. You may choose to be manipulated, but you should at least know to recognize when it's happening. So through researching the books, there are lots of things I, I now spot that I didn't really see before. And I'm so glad I know. I mean, can I give you just one example? Please, please, please. I'm okay. Afraid, yeah. One is called the trigger stacking effect. So this is something that's long been known in animal psychology and it applies to humans as well. You can layer fears one on top of the other to make them more powerful. Fear is the steam in the emotional engine. It's used all the time. It's the very basis of my book, A State of Fear. So here's an example. There was something in the news a few weeks ago about parasites, ticks, that could carry diseases to make you sick, moving northwards because of climate change. So three fears, natural human fears, are stacked on top of each other. One is parasitic infection, two is disease, and three is natural disaster. So when you see that headline, you're like, oh no, it's you know, it's got like three times the effect. It's an unholy trinity of fear-mongering. Once you notice trigger stacking, you'll see it all over the place in the news. One fear isn't enough if it can be doubled up or trebled. You've kind of done the definitive book. I guess on these techniques. I mean, the reference list is, you know, for all the chapters is is so well researched. Um, one of the things I would love to pick up with you on that um I read and I, I hadn't really thought about it much, but it made a lot of sense to me. And that was when you talked about the slippery slope. Um, so you say the kind of brainwashing happens, uh, kind of akin to uh, a frog in a boiling hot pan of water. If you just drop the frog in this boiling hot pan of water, it's just going to jump out. But if you put it into a cold pan of water and then you turn the temperature up, then the frog, it actually doesn't leave. It just becomes gradually acclimatized to it. And one of the examples you gave that that I read and I thought, this is so true, 
was the example of income tax, for instance. Income tax was first introduced, as you say, as an emergency measure of 10% during war times. Now in this age, it's 40, 45%, council tax, VAT, road tax, inheritance tax, <laughs> fool duty, stamp duty. Um, to me, that kind of seems like a, 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 a gradual progress, progression of things. So I wonder kind of if you could talk about the slippery slope. Yeah, there are different ways it works. Um, there's the foot in the door. So instead of telling people what you want instantly, if it seems outrageous, you get them there slowly by seeding an idea and then asking for a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more at a time. This is something that's quite easy to resist, to be honest. You just say no to the very first request. Stand your ground. Um, and there's a way that you see it play out quite often in politics and activism, um, something called triangulation. I'll give you an example. If I take, take us back to COVID again, if you remember in this country, we had a lockdown, which applied to everybody. But then at some point, um, different restrictions were introduced by different regions. There were tiers, tiered restrictions. What happened was you got different areas debating which tier they should be in, because obviously everybody wanted to be in a better tier where they had more freedom to do things, well, apart from some people who wanted their tier to be stricter because it made them feel safer. But, you know, what you got then was a, a debate about tiers. Now, if you were someone like me who wasn't really sure lockdown was a good idea at all, if you then got into the tier debate, what you did was lose sight of the original argument. Is lockdown evidenced? Is there evidence for it? What is the past history? How do we know it's a good idea? Is there a cost-benefit analysis? As soon as you start arguing about tiers, you have lost your original argument, which is that evidence hasn't been put forward for lockdown at all. So that's another way it works. And this idea of um, boiling the frog or foot in the door, there's a term for it that the, the nudge experts use, which is called incrementalism. So they want to get you used to something one step at a time, rather than tell you about um, the end result, which you might find off-putting in the first instance. Why is that? Is that because if, you know, if it's just one big step, then it's just too much, people will just refuse, but just manipulators, if they just take one step forward or two steps or then take a step back, the change can just become more incremental. We can adapt with more. Is, is that why? Why does that work? It's to get you used to it slowly. I mean, studies have shown that if you ask somebody outright to do, say, one hour of charity work, they'll go, oh, crikey, that's a lot. But if you ask them first, well, if they'll do 20 minutes, they're more likely to say yes. You know, it's it's really that simple. We're more likely to say yes to smaller requests. And then the person asking might have a plan to get you to the big request. In your mind, what is the the perhaps the biggest manipulation tactic that you've kind of seen in recent times? Biggest manipulation the biggest tactic. Manip I think the thing that I'm most alert to at the moment is the use of fear. Now, I started talking to you by saying there's nothing new under the sun. Mm. You know, people have always used fear. Fear serves a very important evolutionary purpose. We're supposed to react when we're frightened and alter our, our course. We're supposed to course correct. But fear is, is weaponized against us 
all the time. So something that strikes me about the news at the moment is the way fear is being used in the discussion about artificial intelligence. So, you know, you've got to give us one thing as a species. We love pondering our own demise. You know, we're quite addicted to fear from the Mayan calendar to Halley's comets to the Y2K bug, um, the Cold War, COVID, climate catastrophe. We're always talking in terms of something being a mass extinction event. Now, that language recently has been used about AI, that it might literally pose a mass extinction event. Now, I'm not an AI expert, although I'm a very keen amateur, and I play with it and I read about it. Um, I've just written an article about it, actually. So I'm I'm interested in AI. But when I hear language like AI poses a mass extinction threat, that makes me really curious. You know, AI doesn't have sentience. It isn't human-like. It has some human-like qualities, but it's not, it's not human-like. So if we're talking about it posing that threat, what does that really mean? So it's been described as being like nukes, like nuclear weapons. And yet in all the talk at the moment about how regulation is required, nobody is talking about a very serious ethical threat posed by AI that academics have been warning about for years, which is algorithmic nudging. So AI can be sedimented with nudge and with behavioral psychology. You could almost call it a brainwasher's dream because it can be deployed at scale, huge scale. Think about the billions of people that use the brain in their pocket, their phone, and are on social media. So you can use AI at scale, but it it can also be completely individually personalized to your digital footprint. So that's something academics have been warning poses a real risk to consent, privacy and manipulation. It's a huge risk to us, the individuals. And yet in all of this fear mongering about AI, no one's talking about algorithmic nudging. They're trying to make out it's as serious as a nuclear weapon. The, The threat is completely exaggerated and described as something different. Why? Because regulations on the table. You know, all the tech leaders that wrote uh, this open letter, they're trying to convey to us that they are worried now about AI for the first time, but they've all been working on it for years. This isn't a new, this isn't a new thing. They've been working on it for years. Why? Because governments want to regulate. I suspect they'll want a seat at the table. So personally, Although fear isn't a new form of manipulation, I think that through the media and social media, we've never seen fear used like it is now about everything. And I mean, personally, I have fear fatigue. <laughs> it would be it would be quite hard to make me feel seriously existentially worried about any threat that I see in a headline now. Because I think, okay, what's this really about? Why do you want me to be frightened? Right, like the boy who cried wolf, you know. <laughs> exactly. It, exactly. Yeah watching a lot of the news or spending a lot of time on social media i just realized a long time ago that that they weren't good for me and i tried to deploy my own self-control i thought that i could just you know put limits on the apps and whatnot and i thought that that would be sufficient for me to kind of uh have some some kind of control in my life i realized that, that that's not true and i think that kind of bringing self-control to social media is kind of like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Um, there are very, as you mentioned, very, very clever people out there. 
that know how to capture your attention. And I have to say, I've never seen an app like TikTok that is so, that for me anyway, that is so addictive. You know, you like something and more of it appears and this, that, and the other. But what I would love to ask you is, if we see an idea out there that perhaps we think is manipulative, should we comment on it? Should we push back against it? Or do you think that perhaps I should just put my phone down, take the apps away and just go and spend some time with my family? Where do you kind of stand on that one? Oh, well, I the idealist in me wants to say that we should push back. But the defeatist in me thinks it's probably not worth it. You know, this is part of my trajectory in writing Free Your Mind. I really have given up on governments or ethical bodies to do what's really right for us. So you talk about social media. I mean, this is a subject close to my heart because, hello, my name is Laura and I'm a Twitter addict. I... I, you know, it's worth saying at this point, in case anyone thinks I'm really smug and virtuous, I'm not a paragon of virtue. Um, one thing I have struggled really hard with is my own social media addiction, because social media has brought these tremendous benefits. I'm a natural communicator, so of course I'm totally sucked in. It's a very democratic medium in lots of ways, so I love it. And yet I'm on it way too much, to a degree that I accept is bad for me. And I'm like you, the time limits app controls, screen time, it does not work because I can override it. So I'm going to out my co-author Patrick here. Sorry, Patrick. (laughs) Um, It's the first interview. He can tell me afterwards if I did the wrong thing. But I know that he's given his passwords to his wife. So she has the control of the screen time on his phone. I don't think this is a bad thing to do. I know that he'll be in his house and he puts his phone in his car. Right? You know, it's an environmental uh, way to control it. Last summer, I put myself into a digital detox in a convent because I thought I need a complete break. Did you read that chapter in the book? You know, I I got me to a nunnery. Um, Yeah. And actually, that was a weirdly powerful experience. So much emotion flooded out because I gave myself psychologically and emotionally complete peace. It was actually a little bit frightening and a little bit unnerving. I slept from Britain. I cried quite a lot. I don't want to make it sound like I'm some gibbering wreck and this is all about the Twitter addiction. It's it's not that at all. I think it's just because I gave myself this very rare moment of total peace, which which we don't get a lot. So coming back to um, your question, I think there should be better protections for people, but I don't trust the people in charge of this protection protections to know what's best so i'll give you the example of the online safety bill in the uk probably ofcom is going to have control of you know it's going to be the regulator for social media i don't think ofcom is the right organization to be checking social media algorithms to see what they're doing to us because you know we know from the twitter files in the us that shadow shadowy government departments and big tech talk to each other so I don't think a a government quango is really the right way forward that's one thing the next thing is I I trust people I trust people's minds I trust us so actually what I would find really helpful is if social media companies told you what their algorithms did it could be like health warnings on cigarette packets they just tell you quite basically what the algorithm does you know we prioritize this content 
we like um, engagement based on these qualities. We de-boost you if you do this. You know, just tell us in simple terms. And then behind that, put the full secret source for people who can understand the technological jargon. Why don't you just give us the information and we make up our mind? So that's not the way the world's going. The, the world is not moving at the moment more towards the transparency that I think would really empower people to make their own decisions that's what would really help us I think when we're using social media to what you could do as the individual I think you have to use it mindfully I'm still struggling to reduce my consumption but what I've learned by researching social media and writing this book has made me a lot more mindful about specific techniques one thing I try not to do is the slot machine effect so do you use Twitter a lot or are you more TikTok? I use Twitter, but I don't use the app anymore. That's where I've come to on it. Well done. Now, that's good. That's a good move, because if you're on the app and, you, you know, you read your feed and then you think, gosh, in the 10 minutes I've been on here, what's new? What else is here? And, you know, you put your finger on the screen, and you pull down. That's the slot machine effect. Mm. This is just like gambling machines in casinos. They know exactly what they're doing. So you do that. Then maybe you check your WhatsApp and then maybe you check your LinkedIn or your Facebook. See, I sound so old. Or your TikTok if you're younger. And then you think, oh, well, what have I missed on Twitter while I've been doing all that? You come back, pull down on the slot machine effect again. So I try not to let my finger run the show anymore. I think now I've looked. I don't need to do the slot machine pull down again. Um, the other thing you can do is, you know, it's, it's basic things like you can turn all your notifications off. Don't let your phone ding. Don't let it throw up charming little red hearts and noises and colours at you because they they pull you back in. Um, another thing you can do is you can turn your phone grey. This makes it incredibly boring. My co-author Patrick has his phone set to grayscale. It's amazing how much the charm that sucks out of so many of our social media apps, which rely upon images and videos and coloured little emojis. So if you make your phone grey, um, you'll find that you use it a lot more functionally. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think that, that that's bound to have a positive feedback effect in the sense that suddenly you've got more time. You've got more time to exercise. You've got more time to spend with your family. You've got more time to do the project that you were thinking about doing. What would you say to the people that, you know, listen to this, they say, Laura, that sounds great, but I'm afraid of missing out on something if I don't have the notifications on, if I'm not doing the slot machine. What would you say to those? Well, everyone's, I, I wouldn't say that people have got to find a right place to calibrate themselves. Now, for instance, I don't really watch any television anymore. None. Mm. And I don't feel like I've lost out at all. But I know other people really like watching the news or they really like watching documentaries or drama. And I wouldn't say to people that they shouldn't do that. I just think they should understand the techniques that are used to manipulate them, because you can engage with media and social media consciously and mindfully. I, I think the ideal is to get your consumption to the minimal level that suits you. But the main thing is using it mindfully. So I'm on I'm on social media way more than I should be. But as I said, because I now understand how posts are driven by emotion and engagement, confrontation and debates. I choose so much more whether to dip into that or not. If I see something that makes my heart go a bit faster because it makes me angry or worried, I don't share it. 
Mm. Don't share it. I never react in the heat of the moment on social media. I call down. There are so many things you can do to to make sure that your use of it is mindful so that, you know, you're the master of social media. It's not the master of you. Yeah. And and I remember one time where I, I think it was actually, I talked to you a little bit about Douglas Murray. Um, I remember reading in his book, um, and one thing that I become a little bit concerned about, this would probably have been back in 2020 or 2021, maybe 2020. Um, and that was that, you know, Douglas, he talks in his book, that if you go to Google and you type in gay couples, you will see exactly what you asked for. You will see an awful lot of gay couples. Um, if you type in straight couples, then you will see an awful lot of gay couples. Um, and I'm not sure if this is still right as of, as of 2023, but when I did it in, you know, 2020, and he gave a couple of other examples of, of this, these things, and, um, you know, and, and it kind of poses a number of questions. You know, I don't want to say, you know, spread any conspiracy theories, but but some of the things that, that I thought myself, I thought, well, is this a machine learning algorithm? Are images of gay couples just searched for more? I thought, or you know, a more sinister thing is, are there is there a top-down effect of people trying to perhaps control our perceptions of relationships? Um, are you perhaps concerned about things like this happening? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I think there's a couple of things I want to come back on. Firstly, as you said, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. Now, quite controversially in the book, we suggest people shouldn't be scared of the term conspiracy theorist now i know we go right against the grain of all of these new misinformation units and truth verifiers the entire priest cast of truth versus conspiracy theory but this distinction i'm not saying people should believe conspiracy theories i'm saying they shouldn't be scared of the term conspiracy theorist it is a neologism it is a new term that is designed to quell debate it's designed to stop you asking questions. So that's the first thing. I don't want people to fall down rabbit holes and get lost. I don't think the earth is flat. But there are conspiracy theories which have come true. I'm always amazed how many people have never heard of MK Ultra, which is not a conspiracy theory, although people thought it was. It's true. It's just a shame that so many CIA documents were destroyed or missing. We can't know the full extent of the mind control MK Ultra program. I think it is important to be sceptical and to ask questions. And when people don't want you to ask questions, when they want to apply a derogatory label, to dissuade you from asking questions, you should be asking questions. The only real conspiracy theory is that people in power aren't conspiring towards their own ends. Of course they are. Okay, so effectively what you're asking is, is there top-down social engineering? Well, this is not a conspiracy theory, and I can give you a couple of hard examples of it. You very kindly mentioned there are lots of references in the book. You will see that we have referenced that Google confirmed that they altered their search results during COVID to make sure that um, so-called authority-approved COVID messages were at the top of the search results. 
DuckDuckGo, who a lot of people prefer because of its emphasis on privacy, you may think they have a different approach to search results. Well, not necessarily. They've confirmed that they won't um, put anything they consider to be Russian propaganda in the top of search results about the Ukraine. Now, there are some very obvious reasons why they would choose that. But what if the very thing you're looking for, for your own reasons, goodness knows what, maybe journalism or academia or just curiosity, maybe you're looking for Russia propaganda. Well, you won't find it at the top of the .go search results because they have decided that you should not see it. Um, on a separate but similar subject, the UK's nudge unit, that's the Behavioural Insights Team, which was originally set up by the UK government and is now independently owned, produced a report while it's still one third owned by the UK government with Sky, a licensed broadcaster about how to nudge people towards net zero behavior. So it talked about using the gamut of TV programming from weather reports to news, believe it or not, to product placements, to children's TV programming, dramas, documentaries and soap operas in order to make people decarbonize their lifestyles, which, of course, is towards a not controversial policy goal, net zero. You may think this is a good thing or not, but you should know how they do it. And interestingly, in this report, they talk about the historic use of TV for social engineering purposes, such things like knife crime or, of course, um, interracial relationships, quite possibly what you're talking about as well. Gay relationships, too, could quite conceivably have been. Um, promoted by nudgers and broadcasters. So if, in fact, people have seen that on search results, I wouldn't write it off and think it's just machine learning. It could well have some sort of top-down uh, reason, and that would be a very reasonable and valid hypothesis considering other evidence around that supports that. Yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting for me to think about. And, and you kind of mentioned the climate there. And one of the things that, that you kind of talked about in the book and I, I'm just trying to remember if this was correct, but but didn't King Charles say something like um, there should be a kind of a, a war-style propaganda promoting, uh, you know, anti-climate change or climate change? I'm, I'm misquoting, but but something to this akin, wasn't? didn't I read that in the book? Yeah, there are a number of um, celebrities or very well-known people that in behavioural psychology would be called messengers because people respond to messages when they come from trusted messengers. This will be why, going back to COVID, you had lots of lockdown and vaccine advice from the NHS or from celebrities rather than politicians whom we trust less. So, yes, in... Um, in the fight against climate catastrophe, you see messengers used a lot, as well as people who might be naturally using their own podium to promote messages. Joanna Lumley um, talked about how we should have wartime start rationing. Um, I can't remember the exact King Charles quote, I'm afraid, but I think he has said something about how we should perhaps be on like a wartime footing, that we should take the threat of climate change so seriously that it would justify different sorts of measures than we'd normally see. I actually remember during COVID and you would see these these people, you know, of Love Island and football players and these things, uh, you know, spreading uh, things like stay at home and these things. And and you would you think and I was thinking to myself, well, why is it coming from these people? But as you point out in the book that, you know, uh, 
perhaps a lichen or you know some sort of authority figure that they that it taps into these basic primal uh cognitive biases that we have if they perhaps come from people that we like or admire and perhaps mm-hmm. that's why you're saying that's why they're getting these people to do it as opposed to matt hancock it's exactly why. And so there are government departments that employ agencies that get celebrities to do things for them. I mean, in the most extreme end of the example, we saw some of the royal family posting their vaccines on Instagram. You know, you've never seen Kate, Princess Kate, um, have a vaccine or injection before, have you? But we did during COVID. So they would set the example that people should be vaccinated. So um, she's obviously a kind of a different and exceptional example. But yes, agencies uh, will use celebrities to promote messages. Um, And sometimes they do that for free. And sometimes they're also paid to do it. And that's uh, because, and there are documents from the Behavioural Insights team and SPI-B, the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviours, to support this. They use messengers to push messages because human beings respond to people they like and admire. We want to conform um, based on what information is most prevalent and what our superiors and peers do. One thing I would love to ask you about uh, was something that I, I wasn't particularly aware of, but you write in the camp in the book about a campaign to make us eat in insects. What is going on there? How can you not be aware? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you haven't you haven't noticed yourself being persuaded to eat insects yet? I read the book, I'm off the socials, I'm living my life happily. <laughs> no insects for me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, we put this in as a case study because it's it's kind of fun, you know, it's it's kind of fun the fact that um, there are so many techniques being deployed right now to persuade people to eat insects, and yet there isn't some kind of global demand. People aren't clamoring, insects, insects, let me eat insects, make them safe, regulate them. There is no global demand, and yet it is being kind of pushed on us. So you'll see it in... Um, in various channels. But but where does it come from? Well, it comes from supranational bodies who have decided that it would be good for human beings to eat insects because they believe it will have a lower impact on the environment. This is what they say. They say it would be better for us to eat mealworms and crickets rather than cows and sheep and dairy. So we should be switching our protein from the traditional animals that human beings evolved to eat more towards insects. So you see various ways that they do this. One would be using um, social conformity. So we're quite often told that 2 billion people around the world eat insects. This isn't really quite true. The figure is contested. First of all, it should be said that is a minority, not the majority, but it sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? 2 billion. But that would be based on people who've eaten insects once or maybe eat them on one day a year. They're not eating them every day. Um, But they try and choose the biggest number they can because it it creates this salience. It sticks in the mind and it sounds like a lot. There have also been lots of celebrities publicly eating insects and talking about them. I can't believe you missed the video of Angelina Jolie barbecuing and eating tarantulas. You see, if you'd seen it, that would stick in your mind. Um, There's lots of examples like that. Oh, Nicole Kidman eating insects for Vanity Fair. Very gruesome indeed. Um, They're also making their way onto mainstream TV channels. You know, um, Great British Bake Off had insect powder in a a recipe recently. I think it was the Great British Bake Off. Um, Yes, so 
when you see this kind of top-down directive that people should eat insects, you can see multiple ways it happens at these sort of low-level, multiple channels. Um, you know, it's being regulated for, I think in Finland, they introduced insect powder into bread in a very low percentage. I can't remember what the percentage is off the top of my head. It could be two or four or seven percent. It's a small percentage. So you would eat this cookie or this slice of bread. It looks completely normal. Looks like the cookie or the bread you've always bought, you've always eaten. And you think, oh, well, it's only it's only two percent cricket. I can live with that. And you eat it. Of course, before you know it, they'll be increasing the percentage until it's 50 percent. Until one day you're not buying a loaf of bread, you're buying a bag of crickets. That's the whole foot in the door technique, the incrementalism. So that's another way it happens, introducing tiny percentages. Um, there are different trials happening in schools to get children to eat insects. And of course, they pick children for different reasons. One will be it creates a multi-generational spillover effect. So, you know, if your kids are in schooling eating insects and they go, oh, yeah, I ate crickets today. Aren't you brave enough? Come on, mum and dad. It's really cool eating crickets. You save the planet. You know, it starts feeding through into the family. More cynically, I think one tactic about that I really don't like with research in schools is that when children are all in a classroom together, nobody wants to be the kid that doesn't try the cricket or the kid that says, oh, I think eating mealworms is disgusting because they do, there is this natural, very powerful tendency in humans to conform. So they all want to be the hero. They don't want to be the coward. Um, so that's another reason why I think they do the research in schools. And of course, everything's about the next generation uh, will all be replaced by the next generation one day. So it's more important to um, get children used to the idea of eating insects than it is pensioners. Yeah. And I suppose that the children are more averse to social risks. It's, they're much less likely to take a social risk because for, for, for adolescents, this is kind of like Sarah Blakemore's book, for adolescents, taking social risks, social relationships are so important for them. So if you do re research on them, as you pointed out, it's so much harder for them to say, I don't want this worm when the popular kid in school does. Um, but for adults, that's, that's it's a little easier to say no. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to disagree with you. I'm ooh, not okay. sure that that's true. I think that we think it's harder for children. But if you think back to the, the fairy tale of the emperor who wore no clothes, now I know it's only a story, but it just took a little boy, uh, the yeah. innocence and courage of a little boy to call him out as being naked. I can think in the last week of a letter that was sent to Rishi Sunak by five schoolgirls saying that they want single sex loos because Department for Education guidance has been to schools that they should provide single sex and mixed sex loos to be inclusive of trans people. But some schools have been going too far and making a lot of their loos. The majority of their loos mixed sex. Uh -huh. I've got teenage boys. I can tell you, kids are holding on all day rather than going to mixed sex toilets. They don't like them. It's about privacy, dignity, safeguarding. So it's taken five girls to write to the prime minister rather than the adults really being in the room and saying, come on, biological reality matters and we need to make sure there's correct toilet provision for everybody. I think sometimes children can be as courageous as adults. Yeah. And I think that going back to my epiphany of lockdowns, we saw so much conformity from people, people really being afraid to speak up. It's a real modern blight. And it's another reason actually why I think this book, Free Mind, is important now because we talk a lot about free speech and free speech is vital for the individual and for society to flourish. But what is free speech if you don't have free thinking? 
And then with that, you need the courage to speak. So you need to be able to think for yourself. You need to have a society which will tolerate free speech. And then you need to have some courage to speak up. But I don't think it's age related. I think and I think it is something you can learn. You can bring up your children to adopt all three of those free thinking, free speech and courage. But we as adults can develop that at any point. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I think the children can be incredibly courageous. Um, I think that the the kind of point that I I was I was making was I think it depends on the context that they're in. If you have one person in a context that four of their best friends really believe something, the the only point I was making was I think that it's a little bit more difficult for children to disagree with them than it is for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the kind of but but if in a context of where if all five children believe the same thing, then I, I think that they can really push things very courageously. Um, but but I think that this is also why it is very important for, uh, you know, for there to be some sort of digital regulation. I mean, this is what Jonathan Haidt has been very diligently t- trying to protect these people from this world of manipulation on things like social media. Um but I, I got to say, I just got a couple of questions for you left that I would love to just kind of wind down with. Um, we asked our newsletter, we asked our Instagram, and one question that kind of came up over and over again, not a particularly pleasant question, but but I would love to get your thoughts on it. Um, we kind of talked a bit about television. We talked a bit about the news. Uh, there's currently a very big story going on at the moment around an unnamed BBC presenter. So, of course, not the first time that this happened with the BBC. Uh, the question came in um, and it was essentially, do you think that there's going to be any more to come out or where does this kind of end? What about this particular? Just about the perhaps the BBC in general. I mean, I haven't, I don't have any extra light to shed on this story mm. than anybody else would. I think that the BBC should probably rightly come under fire for not having been more transparent. We've seen this in other examples. The BBC behaves as though it has a special status and doesn't owe us complete transparency. And I think that much as I've grown up loving the BBC and listening to Radio 4, it was always on in our our house. And I had that inherent trust. I think that there is an arrogance, you know, we've been so proud of the BBC and it's been proud of itself that there's there's an arrogance that it gets a special status. Um, I'm not, I mean, to kind of switch what we're talking about a little bit, I'm not a fan of misinformation units at the BBC and truth verifiers. Mm. Who's checking the fact checkers? There is always so much bias. It's not, there's no such thing as being unbiased and politically and ideologically neutral. And I think we need to stop pretending that it is. The question that we finish all of our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living? Oh, I love this. Okay. Long answer or short answer. What makes life worth living? Well, it'll be different for different people. You know, we're all made of different stuff. For me, what makes life worth living is truth. I never would have said this 20 years ago, but for me, it's all about truth. I'm sickened by lies. Um, It's almost, I almost have a pathological curiosity for the truth. I need the truth. And 
I think everything comes from truth. You know, truth and love, I think, are two of the most important values in the world, but I don't think there's any love without truth. So I think we should be honest with ourselves as far as we can about who we are, with what we see in the world, and then what you need is courage to talk about it. So truth and courage, being true to yourself. Um, you know, we all sometimes have to do jobs that are about making money and not the most meaningful purpose. But where we can, I think that we should honour what's true to us. Where can these guys connect with you? Where can they get the book? Where else would you like to send our, our audience? Um, if you pre-order the book, you'll get it first when it comes out on the 20th of July, um, or you can buy it on the 20th of July on Amazon or any bookshop, any of your favourite bookshops, obviously Blackwell's, Waterstones, Independence, anywhere. Um, I'm on Twitter. As I've already mentioned, it's my natural habitat. I'm on there quite a lot. So if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter. And my handle is at Bear Reality. And Bear is spelled like naked, not like the animal. <laughs>